recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. Hang on a second here, folks. That's right, hang on a second. Michael Colligan, co-host of Starving for Darkness here. Just to tell you real quick before we get into the conversation, which is super important for you to hear, that you need to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, especially if you're a contractor or a distributor, Greg Eric. That's right. And they're coming out with a new exterior line of product, or they have come out with it, and they're going to continue to add to it, and they're dedicated to making dark sky friendly lighting. Uh, and potentially dark sky compliant as we go. For now, though, they do have a dark sky full cutoff wall pack, a variety of wattages, Kelvin temperatures, and a precision crafted optical lens that's ideal for increased fixture spacing and uniformity. So less lighting fixtures needed because it, it can provide more light out of the one fixture. So check that out. Go to keystonetech.com. That's right. Hold on. Here comes Starving for Darkness. But before. K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, and I am so pleased to have Tyler Nordgren here today. Dr. Tyler Nordgren is an artist, author, astronomer, and night sky ambassador. He holds a PhD in astronomy from Cornell University, where he did work on dark matter, uh, as well as a BA in physics from Reed College. For over a decade, he has worked with the National Park Service to turn the national parks into the single largest source for public science and astronomy education in the world. Tyler, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to probe your brain and ask you all these wonderful questions. Um, and we start every show with the same request. Please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe. Oh, I, well, first of all, I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You know, when, I, you know, when I think about one of the most awe-inspiring nights I had, I was lucky enough to spend three weeks on a four-masted sailing ship sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. <sighs> and one night out in the middle... The trade winds were beautiful, lovely, warm evening, and looking up, and there was just not a single source of light anywhere in the sky. There was no glow over the horizon, no light blinking there in the distance. It was just the sky overhead, and that's that was it for me. Oh, that's amazing. I had recently turned, heard this term, uh, blue water sailing. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, oof, that's the place to see the stars. Just get away from all the land and and be able to really find the the night sky. And it was so dark that I, I could see the, the the light in the water of the uh of the, the uh phosphorescence of the oh, plankton yes. there. And you could just see the trail of the ship and as it would glow and it, it just it looked like little pops of light underneath the water reflecting the stars overhead. 
we learned actually in our last recording that we did, um, which should be coming out soon, that actually most bioluminescent creatures on the planet live, I think it's between 80 and 1,000 meters um, in the ocean, um, so mm. in that range of depth. So, um, and one of my most favorite memories as a child was taking an oar into the ocean at night and just stirring up the bioluminescence. Um, it's just so beautiful and so meaningful. So you have an organization, the Space Art Travel Bureau. Can you talk about your work um, and the mission of this organization? So it's a company that I formed about 10 years ago or more mm -hmm. at this at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's from work that I was I was doing with the national parks. Uh, I had spent a sabbatical with the U.S. National Park System back in 2007, 2008. And traveling through those parks for 14 months, working with park rangers about astronomy in the parks, uh, a book came out that I, I wrote, Stars Above, Earth Below, about astronomy and, and what people could see when they went to a park. And one of the illustrations in that book was a poster that said, See the Milky Way, where mm -hmm. half the park is after dark in America's national Ooh. parks. Love that. And, oh, thank you. And yeah. it was it was just I needed illustrations. I needed pictures to show people what you could see if you went out to one of these dark sky places. And when the book came out, it turned out that that illustration wound up being one of the most popular things, especially amongst the, the park rangers that I had gotten to know. And so they asked if I could draw uh, versions of that poster that used their park and if they could use it for their night sky programs. And I was happy to do that. And so one poster became two, became five, became 10. And then the parks asked if they could start to sell them because they started getting inquiries from the public. Mm -hmm. And before I knew it, I had a second business that I was running in the <laughs> evenings and on weekends, selling posters and artwork to the national parks. And it's since become such a, a big part of what I do that I, I actually retired from my faculty job in order to devote myself <laughs> full time to this art and interpretation in, in these natural, naturally dark places. That's amazing. And, you know, there's a child in all of us that wants a picture to tell us the story. And I think that your work actually is really feeding that part of ourselves that doesn't want a long blurb about why we should pay attention to the dark sky. It's like, inspire me, tell, you know, draw that out of me. And it's just, it sounds like your work is really feeding that need. Um, so now getting to your, 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 what was your day job? Um, you earned a PhD in astronomy from Cornell. Amazing. And you went on to be an astronomer at the U.S. Naval Observatory in Lowell, the Lowell Observatory, and then a professor of astronomy at the University of Redlands in California. So my, my question for you is, in all of your study of astronomy, what is the one thing that keeps coming back to you over and over again? Oh, I, I have a love of telescopes. And mm -hmm. it's, it's something that, that my, my father first bought, a, bought me a telescope when I was young and I'd look at the moon. But as time went on, I just, I loved, well, as you said before, what you can see with your eyes is yes. so much more profound than, than reading entire books are. Yes. And yes. through the 
working at the PhD and then going on to work at observatories, I found myself time and time again using ever larger and larger telescopes. I, I joke that my, my first telescope was this little eight inch Celestron my father bought me. And my second telescope was the five meter Palomar telescope in California. And then I went on to the Arecibo, the 1000 foot radio dish that was down in Puerto Rico. So in all these times, I am outside at night under dark locations, looking yes. up at the sky as these telescopes, these marvels of technology are collecting data on distant galaxies or quasars. And, and that's what my life was about. And so when I started working, in fact, with national parks, it was all about connecting what people could see for themselves in these dark sky locations, because it's not just enough to read about it. You must see it for yourself. And if you see it for yourself, you will care about it. Yes. So I, my friend just told me this story today. She actually moved out of the city over the summer and the summer has these long dusks. And so actually her daughter only just recently um, caught the night sky um, because she would normally have gone to bed. And she said that, I mean, my friend was filled with love in recollection of the impact it had on her daughter. And she said her daughter uh, for the following week started talking about how she wanted to become an inventor um, and that she was talking about the night sky. And I just, I'm like, exactly. The night sky is a source, uh, has been a perennial source of inspiration for all humans, even little humans. And it's just, yeah. Oh, I mean, you are absolutely correct. I mean, you think about this, every generation of human beings up until really only about a hundred years ago lived with the night sky. It was something that was visible. The Milky Way stretching across the, you know, from horizon to horizon on every moonless night. It's something that we, we grew up with, we evolved with. And in this last 100 years, we've made it mm -hmm. almost impossible to see. And when I, as a university professor, the majority of my students were from cities. In fact, uh, the World Health Organization says that over 50% of people uh, today now live in cities. And so we have made it impossible to see the stars from there. And as a result, people who grow up in cities never even learn to look up at night because there's nothing yes. to see up there. Truly nothing to seek. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which actually has very forward thinking uh, adaptive lighting, believe it or not, um, which has uh, is is a wonderful notion. And I love that they're forward thinking about the idea of literally designing systems that can get smarter and reduce over time. Um, but still, we don't have a view of the night sky and I can see maybe some big stars or planets, but it's not inspiring. It doesn't, I'm never like, oh my God, you know, strike me down. This is just so gorgeous. I mean, it's, it's unnotable pretty much. Exactly. And so even when you do get one of those events, like say, uh, oh, when Jupiter and Saturn were so close to one another in the evening sky, uh, I think it was last year that they, they almost looked like one star. That was something that you could see from a city. You could watch right. that play of those, those two planets got closer and closer together. But we had divorced it from, from any context. There were, there were no mm -hmm. stars around them. And people had become mm -hmm. so trained not to look at the sky because they couldn't see even a full constellation. 
that even when something that dramatic that is visible occurs, there's no one there to look at it unless unless you happen to be told uh, because you just have been trained not to look up. It's so true. And that's a great segue when you talk about heritage and context, because you wrote a book called Stars Above, Earth Below, A Guide to Astronomy in the National Parks. And this book, according to you, reveals uh, what visitors in America's national parks can observe in their night skies. Um, but you said that the sky is now a window to cultures and times long distant. Um, and can you talk about the storytelling that is generated um, from the sky and how important this is for our heritage? So one one example I'd, I'd give involves the uh, Chacoan culture, the what, what used to be called the Anasazi, or the ancestral Puebloan people in the American Southwest. These were folks who lived in a, a very difficult climate, it's an arid climate, and in order to survive, you needed to really understand what the night sky was doing, because the the sky is what told you uh, what the uh, what the date was, what the season was, when mm -hmm. spring would turn mm -hmm. to summer, would turn to fall and winter. And if you didn't pay attention to these changing seasonal um, clues in the sky, where the sun rises, where it sets, what stars appear when, then you don't survive long because you don't know when to plant and when to harvest and when the rains come. Now, today, we go out to someplace like Chaco Culture National Historical Park in northwestern New Mexico, and we see these great houses, these thousand-year-old structures, and we hear about their astronomical alignments. And you know, the, the hair goes up on the back of your neck, and you think, ooh, I'm in the presence of, of some great knowledge, which, it, in fact, it is great knowledge, but then it even goes a little stranger. You know, it must have been aliens. Surely no human could really have understand these clues. Well, no, in fact, we all can. We have just been mm -hmm. trained not to. True. And so by, by learning about the sky, we learn how the sky and the knowledge of the sky has allowed us to develop technology all over the world uh, to live in, in the harshest climates uh, I mean, we would not be here today if we had not learned you know, when to follow the herds and when to plant the corn uh, and then how to navigate the stars in order to travel around the world to discover mm -hmm. the islands of the Pacific as the, as the Polynesian wayfinders did. That's one of the most spectacular migrations in human history, the settling of the Pacific, and it was all done by the stars. And... You know, I think it also is forgotten that the starlight is a point of survival for wildlife, straight up. And we consider it in our human world, um, there's a notion that's out there that, you know, okay, well, you know, it's not really needed. And that's not true. It's absolutely a point of survival. It was a point of survival for us. It is still a point of survival for wildlife. And I think that that uh, your work in, in what you're saying is also a beautiful reminder of that. Absolutely. We are not the only living species aware of the night sky on this planet. Birds migrate by the stars. Dung beetles roll their little balls of dung by the light of the Milky Way. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, every species on this planet has evolved with roughly 12 hours a day of darkness. 
including we humans. And so as we change that, as we light up the night, we are conducting an experiment, not just on our planet and our planet's wildlife, but we're conducting that experiment on ourselves as well. So yeah. these are all changes we are making to our planet and we're doing it completely without any forethought. Absolutely none. And, you know, if you look and listeners, I, I encourage you always to visit lightpollutionmap.info. Check out the uh, light pollution that has crept up all around you. It's way more than you even think it is. And it's all over the planet. And it's never been like that up to about 150 years ago. It's a massive change in our environment that we have no clue what it will do. Um, now, you also wrote another book. It's called Great American Eclipse. Um, oh, sorry. No, it's called Sun, Moon, Earth, the History of Solar Eclipses from Omens of Doom to Einstein and Exoplanets. So what are the social and scientific influences that eclipses, eclipses have had on human history? So one of the things that I, I now do is uh, I lead uh, solar eclipse expeditions. In fact, I'm about to leave for Antarctica to see a solar eclipse down there. Oh my gosh, are you going uh, to be with Kelly Beatty? Uh, there's going to be about a dozen ships traveling into the path of totality. Okay. So I believe I'm on a different ship than, than he is, but we're all Got going it. to be there in the same place. And that's because we know exactly when these eclipses will occur around the Earth. And ever since Edmund Halley first was able to calculate the, the orbit of the moon and where the shadow of it would fall across the Earth, scientists have traveled to these locations in order to understand our sun. Uh, it's where we first learned about the sun's atmosphere. The element of helium was discovered on the sun during the moment of totality. Wow. And so we understand uh, the, the workings of you know, our life-giving star, the closest star to us, our sun. And in fact, one of the things I love to tell people is that during those few precious moments of totality, when you see the corona, the sun's outer mm -hmm. atmosphere, that at all other times is utterly hidden, except during a total solar eclipse, during those few seconds of totality, you are seeing... Uh, something at a temperature of a million degrees. It is the hottest thing any human being will ever see with their own eyes, barring a thermonuclear explosion. And wow. so it's, we, we see fundamental forces of our universe during those moments of a solar eclipse. Oh my, I mean, that is mind blowing. And I've never seen one um, between you and Kelly Beattie, who's been on the show recently. Um, I definitely now need to make that happen. Um, and so you wrote that modern day physicists continue to use eclipses to confirm Einstein's theory of relativity. Could you explain? So we're, we're, we're at about the 100 year anniversary mark of the uh, 1919 total solar eclipse uh, through which uh, Sir Arthur Eddington confirmed Einstein's general theory of relativity. Hmm. And that, that theory uh, is a theory of gravitation and how gravity works, that gravity isn't just a force between objects with mass, but rather it's a curvature of the fabric of space-time, and that even something without mass, which is light, is affected by gravity. And so during those few moments of a total solar eclipse, when the sun's light is blocked, you can see the light of distant stars behind the sun. And wow. what... Einstein's theory predicted and what was confirmed 
was that the light from those distant stars behind the sun got changed a little bit as that light passed by the sun on its way to us. Wow, that's amazing. And it makes me think of one of my favorite books, um, which was the autobiography of a yogi. Um, And actually, it's actually a text for um, some courses. I I studied religion, um, Eastern religion, Hinduism and Buddhism. And in this book, it actually said that all uh, form is sound and all spirit is light. So I think it's interesting that and then the universe is basically made up of uh, light and sound and that those are the fundamental uh, currents running through. And I always think about that because my body is, you know, the sound, but, you know, there's maybe something in here called my soul, which is the light. And so I think that, I mean, we're definitely both impacted by gravity. So that's just a very, it just makes me think a little bit. Well, you know, Einstein's other great theory was that E equals MC squared. Energy and mass are just two forms of things that can be converted back and forth. And light and sound are, are forms of energy. Uh, sound being a vibration and energy being a, a fluctuation of electromagnetic forces. So in a sense, we are all some form of energy. Yes. Yes. Um, so you do a lot of education on astronomy and astrophotography. Um, Let's talk about your educational process, because, you know, I do believe that all people who find that teaching in some way is sort of being um, innate, uh, an innate desire, have a compassion towards the people that they are trying to bring their message to. Um, And I think when a teacher is compassionate um, or maybe even empathic, that that really starts to get to a different level of conveying that message. And I mean, I have to say that's so evident just from your use of art. But can you talk about your educational process a little bit? You know, I'm I'm uh, 52 years old. I'm I'm of that generation that uh, I ran home from school to watch Carl Sagan on TV uh, when. <laughs> His show Cosmos came out. I, I saved up my allowance to buy his his book, and I would read it along with him as I watched the TV show. And I I still have that book. It's sitting next to me right now, and I, I taught out of it for eighteen years. And he had a profound influence on me that it wasn't just enough to do science. Uh, first of all, science is the most human of endeavors. Uh, to seek to understand the world around us. But in addition, we must also make sure that we share with people the Mm -hmm. the fruits of that knowledge, what it is we've learned about the world and how we can make our world a better place for all of us. So I took that message to heart. I had wanted to be an astronaut, actually, when I was growing up. Uh, Astronaut turned into astronomer. And... uh, but I, I never lost sight of the fact that I owed it to my fellow human beings to share whatever it was I and my colleagues learned uh, to help make life a better, you know, better place for them. Uh, and so that led me to, to seek out a, a university professor job. Uh, I was a university professor for 18 wonderful years. And the classes, I'll still say, I love to teach the most were actually the non-science uh, mm. scientists, uh, astronomy for the non-sciences. Why should they care? Why should, why should you learn about astronomy and what science had to offer? 
Well, I find it interesting that you enjoyed, that you found so much uh, richness teaching people that weren't about to make that their field. Um, because I think that perhaps one of the most beautiful parts of the night sky is that it unites all living things. Um, it, it doesn't matter if you're an expert, it unites us all. So I th think perhaps that's, uh, that's really interesting that you enjoyed giving so much to the lay community on that. And um, you lead astronomical uh, tours um, in Alaska to see the Northern Lights or in the Grand Canyon uh, rafting. Um, what are your experiences? You chase the shadow of the moon, as you say. Um, what are your experiencing um, with these people and, and, and are you bonding and, and what, what is it like? Oh, it, it's, you know, the, the, the pandemic has highlighted just how much I miss that, that human interaction with, with people. Mm -hmm. um, the last trip I went on before the pandemic began was a Northern Lights trip to Alaska. Uh, we, we landed back, back here in New York March 6th, and then the shutdown happened soon after. And on that trip, uh, a couple of the, the people uh, got married. They had, they had uh, become oh. engaged. They had contacted uh, me beforehand. I got myself ordained. And so uh, they had really wanted to be wed by the light of the Northern Lights. Uh, I told them that was going to be awfully cold, and I could not guarantee that there would actually be Northern Lights on the, the moment they wanted it. But when we got out there, we got out there on the mountain and the sky was beautiful and it was brutally cold. It was about minus 20. But when the lights came out and you see them fluctuate and wave across the sky, it's, it's again, it's something unlike anything that you, you experience in your daily life. And you know that you're seeing something that's a cosmic force. And in, in this case with the Northern Lights, it's the play of energy between the sun and the Earth's magnetic field, which is caused by the core of our planet. And so you're, you're really seeing interplanetary forces at work dancing across the sky in front of you. And how can you just not be amazed by that? And so the, the people I meet on these trips, um, there, there have been several who've gone on multiple. Uh, there, was, there was one couple uh, I met on a Northern Lights trip that then came with me on my next trip rafting the Grand Canyon. Uh, and we brought along a telescope to see the stars in the Milky Way overhead in, in, uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the desert Southwest. And it was just, again, nights that you just couldn't believe uh, seeing this other half of the world that we have just completely lost sight of. Yeah, that's such a beautiful memory you describe of what a human experience to commit to partnership underneath this, these elemental factors um, that make us feel so part of something, but also in a way that obliterates our egos about it. So it's a, such a deeply humbling and connecting way to partner. It's beautiful. And you know, in the case of a, of a total solar eclipse, I mean, you, you, when you see a total solar eclipse, you are seeing the alignment of the sun and the moon and not just the earth, because not all parts of the earth get to see a total solar eclipse. You are seeing the alignment of the sun and the moon and you. 
you are lining with these planetary right. objects. Oof. And so it, it creates a sense of awe. And yes, I am a PhD scientist. I know exactly what the forces are that lead to this and how to predict them. But that does not change the fact that the first time I got to see a total solar eclipse, I about wept because this was the most unnatural, natural object I'd ever seen in my life. And so I understand that power to be awed. And that yeah. is something that is not to be trifled with and it's not to be dismissed. And the more that we learn to be awed, uh, sociologists have actually studied that people who develop a sense of awe actually are better people in the sense of wanting to care about others that, that realize that the universe is more than just about us, that we have a duty to others and our planet. So if I can share this sense of awe with people, I'd like to think I'm helping make the world a better place. That is so interesting that studies show that a sense of awe actually makes people more compassionate towards one another. That's amazing and it's not surprising either and i it's just when you think about how how much awe has been robbed from humankind it's startling startling so you let's get into your art tyler because okay. you have quite the art career um you work to educate the public through your art um you have um color illustrations uh, in your book that include both night sky photography and vintage style travel posters. Now, for anyone who knows Paul Bogard's very important work, The End of Night, um, I only just learned this today, Tyler, but Tyler did the cover. And if you're watching, I, I have the book up here. Um, but this beautiful cover was done by Tyler. So um, I'm curious, what is your media? What are your tools? What's your starting point look like? Let's get into your work as an artist. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, you know, this is just the, the biggest quirk of my life. I would never have imagined myself <laughs> doing this. Uh, I, I joke <laughs> that uh, if you want to become a professional artist, the first thing that you have to do is get a PhD in astronomy. Because, boy, that certainly helped out in my life. Um, but you're, you're right. It, it all goes back to that, that first book I did, uh, just doing the illustrations for it. Uh, I, the, I wanted to create something that looked like those, those uh, Works Progress Administration posters from the 1930s. Because you, when you travel through America's national parks, you see these posters from the 1930s advertising to people, see America, see the Grand Canyon. And it's something that we associate uh, with those places. And so I wanted to tap into that. And so I created these posters, mm. see the Milky Way and half the park is after dark. Um, I start, my, my history of, of art had been, I used to draw political cartoons for newspapers when I was all the way from high school up through graduate school. and was even a professional cartoonist for a, a short bit, but it was all pen and ink work. And so what I, mm -hmm. what I normally, used to do is start with a pen and ink drawing of say the Milky Way over someplace like Grand Canyon, for instance. Uh, I'd photograph that, scan that in to Adobe Illustrator, and I've got a giant tablet uh, that I, I use with a, a stylus. And I would then fix up the drawing uh, electronically, add color, make it look like one of these 1930 lithograph posters. Uh, 
and and that 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 was it. Uh, it was it was something that I learned how to do one uh, one afternoon, uh, and mm -hmm. one poster, as I said, became five, became ten, and I think now I've got like two hundred posters I've done for various groups and organizations. Um, and you can find those those Milky Way posters on sale in parks all across the country. They're on my website, but it's I just never would have imagined that would turn into a career. And so I, I'm as surprised as anybody. Well, one thing I can say is that um, you do you have an eye for composition and uh, and color. Um, is, is very evident. I mean, listeners, you should absolutely go to tylernordgren.com um, and you can check out all of his posters because they're just absolutely beautiful um, and it's super inspirational. Um, so, you know, it's the kind of thing where it looks easy and then you, or it doesn't look easy, but, but when you try it yourself, you realize there's infinite. Uh, how I separate art and design is that design is a system that you work within. And art is an infinity that you find your path within. Um, and so the infinite choices make it very difficult to commit to a composition and you clearly have the ability to commit and edit and it's very beautiful. Well, thank you. I, one of the things that when I, when I draw, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I'm able to pick and choose the, the people that I, I do commissions for. They're, they're organizations and causes that I believe in, environmental organizations like the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, but also places like NASA, the National Park Service. Um, so, so when I draw, I'm drawing something that I believe in. Uh, mm -hmm. Secondly, though, I, I believe in, in education through art. So unlike if you go into a, a, a lot of national parks today, you can see all sorts of art that looks like that's those same travel posters from back in the day. But there's there's nothing that's educating you about that. I All of my posters are designed to have some education. I want to inform you. Uh, and that's part of what the Works Progress Administration was about back in the 30s, was informing mm -hmm. the public through through public art. But the last thing is is emotion. Uh, I want I want you to feel like I need to go see that, whether it's the Milky yeah. Way or a total solar eclipse. And so for me, when I draw, I only care about you know what can I make you, what can I make me feel when I look at that at that drawing. And so I I can tell that with Paul Bogard's book, it it really struck a nerve with folks, and I am so happy. It's such a wonderful book. He's a great guy. Um, and so I was just glad to be a part of that. That's amazing. Um, so your, your artwork certainly does convey a message and I, and I love that you hearken back to the 1930s, um, WPA works. What is that program? Um, works, works progress, progress administration. Yeah. yeah so, um, and is that still in effect today? Is or are you just drawing upon the the look and feel of that work? It it's it was a uh, a program by the, the the Roosevelt administration during the depression, uh, and so it it's something that I, I wish we could have a similar program today, uh, jobs program to, mm. to help build. Uh, and so one of the things that I, I do is I I use that. Uh, that style uh, in order to draw inspiration and, and help 
uh, perhaps inspire the, the next generation. Uh, for instance, where I'm living here in central New York, we have a lot of state parks, in fact, a lot of national parks too, uh, where bridges and trails and structures were built uh, thanks to the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, which was another Roosevelt program during the Depression. And so much of what we, we see in some of these parks come from those jobs programs of the 1930s. Mm. And so for here in, in central New York, I developed a whole series of posters about the Civilian Conservation Corps and what they did for our local state parks, which mm. we're still enjoying today. And maybe, just maybe, we can have a, a new Civilian Conservation Corps that will build back better for the, the next century. Yes, and you you remind people of work that's been done and it, it builds gratitude um, and understanding with just a glance. You know, you can glean the meaning of, of um, what you're trying to convey in 5, 10, 15 seconds. So it's an event, you might not get someone to read a paragraph, but you could potentially get information across in this um, image that you're creating. When you're working, do you achieve the flow state? And what happens to your brain? Does that benefit other work that you're doing? So one of the things when I was a, a political cartoonist that I, I told people why that worked with my science was that the cartoons I sought to make connections between things that might not be obvious and to find creative ways to connect them that uh, would reveal something new and something deeper. Well, that's what science, that's what I was also doing with my science, my research at the time, was looking to find ways to connect and bring deeper, richer understanding to a phenomenon. So people, when they talk about left brain versus right brain and mm -hmm. science being different from art, for me, I've, I've found that it always goes hand in hand. And so when I'm drawing now, and I, you know, the, the hours will just flow by, and I, I'll forget <sighs> to eat. Uh, and I think yeah. at this point, uh, as we get on into winter, uh, it's round about 4.30 in the afternoon when suddenly the light gets too dark out my window and I can no longer draw. That I, I, It forces me to say, all right, time to stop for the day. Uh, because I just I get so into this, both emotionally and intellectually, um, that it just, it, it really, it is a, a work of love. I... I wish for everyone that they can find a relationship with the work that they produce that looks and feels as you just described. And I do think that it is actually possible for more and more people to find that flow state and to find that fascination in what they can bring uh, and do. So that's why I often ask about people's flow states that they find, because I find that when I achieve it for myself, I'm never happier than when I'm in the flow. Um, when I'm enthralled with what's coming out of me and I'm excited with what I have thinking in the future. Um, so I think about um, Hemingway. He, he always said um, regarding his flow state that, um, that he, when he finished working for the day, he always knew what he was going to do next. I think that was a very nice tip to give yourself kind of the low hanging fruit to get the momentum going for the next day and to anticipate and being excited about it. And in that anticipation, you sort of are slow running ideas in the background. 
Um, so does, does that happen for you where you're, yeah. Oh yes. Uh, I have so many ideas for upcoming commissions where I've, I've told customers, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm swamped right now. I've got this eclipse coming up as well. I won't be able to get to it until January, but tell me a little bit, send me some photographs now because over the next two months, I will think about it, uh, laying in bed, waiting to, to fall asleep. It'll percolate through there. And by the time mm -hmm. I finally comes to put pen to paper or stylus to tablet in January, I'll have thought this through and I'll be starting from what I think is a final design. So it's, yes. it's something I'm always, always thinking about. Yeah, I, I truly believe that when you uh, just like say I'm working on a writing project, even if I just open a Word document and save as, and just give it a placeholder, that that is an opening, it's a gateway to allow the current of thought to know that it has a place to go um, and to rest comfortably, that it won't be lost. Um, and that, that that allows the brain to kind of free run um, and not worry about you know trying to capture everything. Right. Uh, when, when I was writing my books, uh, one of the things I would do is I would try not to get bogged down in figuring out, okay, how do I start writing? What is the opening paragraph of the book or the chapter? That's the hardest. And, and you'll obsess mm -hmm. about it and you'll think, well, I haven't got a good enough idea, so I won't start. But just start somewhere in the middle of the chapter. Start somewhere in the middle of a paragraph even. Get the idea down and and before you realize it, things are flowing and you're 10 pages in. So exactly. It's, it, it's so true because oftentimes the middle of the paragraph is the thing you're building around anyway, because that's like the nugget that's driving it. So yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean by that. Um, and so um, do you have any other artistic pursuits besides your, your, your now day job artwork? <laughs> So one of the things I'm doing, uh, the last couple of times I rafted the Grand Canyon, I, I didn't even bother taking a camera along other than my little iPhone that I'd only bring out when safely on dry land. Um, I learned that the hard way. Uh, what I would do <laughs> is I bring along a, a drawing, a little drawing tablet, uh, and it's, it's waterproof pages and a, a pen and a pencil. And I'd have this uh, tucked within my, uh, my, my waterproof gear as I'm going down the river. And when I would see something, I would pull it out and I'd make what I'd call my 30 second sketch because after 30 seconds, the view has changed. And so it mm. got me just looking at the landscape thinking, what is the most important thing here to convey what I'm seeing at this instant? How can I use the fewest number of lines, uh, to convey this scene? And so I've started drawing my way down the river and I've begun to go back to some of those sketches and turn them into pieces of art. Uh, I did the first one this last summer, uh, adding color and shadow and, 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 and it's just, it's, there's, there's absolutely nothing about it that I imagine selling. There's, there's no text on it to see the Grand Canyon. It's just art for art's sake and for me and what I saw going down river. And with this upcoming trip to Antarctica, where we're going to be spending three weeks on a ship out at sea, 
amongst the ice flows. I'm taking my little drawing pad along with me, and I can't wait to see what I see. Wow. I, you know, I'm not, I, I, in design school, sketching is a tool, is a, is a tool you have to learn. And, um, I mean, I have one friend, Yao, he's, he will make you cry with what he illustrates. It's just beautiful. I've never had that talent built in me, but it is a skill that you can, it can get better at. Um, but I do find that when you take the time to sketch things, you look at the connections in such a different way that I would venture to say that in your sketching, you actually are creating um, and, and enriching your memory of the experience. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. Uh, especially you know, as an example, the, the American Southwest in the Grand Canyon with all these layers, as you sketch the angle and the shape of the rock, you're, you're seeing these geological processes at work, you're learning why are things this shape, and you're seeing more than you would ever see before. Yeah, so um, that's amazing. Now, do you, do you have any artwork that specifically tries to angle about education about light pollution? Uh, I've done some artwork, oh, let's see here. Uh, that was, I did it for Spain for the, there was a, the, not um, in Spanish, sorry, uh, for the Chilean total solar eclipse, um, helping to educate uh, the uh, folks that were going to be seeing, not traveling to see a total solar eclipse, but those folks that were actually going to be there in the little villages uh, in the foothills of the Andes to, to let them know what was going to be coming. And, and I worked mm -hmm. with, uh, local anthropologists, local local government officials, in order to really tailor this for them. Uh, so a little bit of that. I see. And but I I do think that your angle in is to show people what they're missing. Is it? Would you say that's correct? Right. Yeah, and, right. Yeah. And and in, like in the case of a, of a solar eclipse, it's the very first solar solar eclipse I ever saw was one that came over my house when I was nine. And I was so terrified about what I heard about it that I hid inside mm -hmm. my house with the curtains drawn uh, because I thought if I accidentally saw the eclipse, I'd burn my eyes out. So mm. I want no one to ever feel the same way. And so part of helping educate people is not just to go see something, but maybe just to go out your front door to see something. And I guess that yeah. applies to the night sky as well for those folks that are lucky enough to live in places where you can still see the stars. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful why uh, to offer people. Um, so you also, so you're kind of in the astronomy family, I might venture to say, um, because you said your wife works at NASA. Is that true? <laughs> My wife is a, a NASA scientist. She's a planetary scientist that studies volcanoes and ice features on Jupiter's moons. And she's wow. uh, a member of the science team for the upcoming Europa Clipper mission that's going to launch in October of 2024. My, that's so exciting. So you worked on um, the design of sundials for the Curiosity rover, um, which you called Mars dials. What what was that project all about? So it started with, with actually with spirit and opportunity and, and then went on to curiosity. Um, so we, when you photograph uh, 
the landscape, maybe with your iPhone or a, you know, back in the day, a film camera, you get that picture and you see the colors in that picture. And you know that if the sky is blue and the trees are green, you know that the color balance is right. And there is software in your iPhone that, that makes sure to adjust those colors, uh, that the detector, that little uh, digital detector is, is, is capturing. That software makes sure that the colors look correct. Well, when you send something to Mars, there's no way to know beforehand what the colors of the rocks should be, what the color of the sky should be. So you need wow. to send what's called a calibration target, something that's on that rover where you know, ah, this tab is blue, this one's red, that's green, that's yellow. There's a post in the middle that casts a shadow so you can see what those colors look like in, in direct illumination from the sun, but also when they're in shade. And it allows you to, to calibrate color balance your, uh, your pictures from Mars. And one of uh, my, when I was in graduate school at Cornell, uh, my professor, Steve Squires, was the principal investigator for Spirit and Opportunity. And so he was designing these calibration targets. And this Cornell alum by the name, by the name of Bill Nye, the science guy, uh -huh. said, well, you know, you know, Steve, you know, something with a, a post that casts a shadow, that's, that's a sundial. So we, we got a team of about six or seven of us together that turned these calibration targets into working sundials. And uh, they sit on the solar panels. Uh, there's three of them up there now, spirit and opportunity and curiosity that's still going. And so I can help say that, yeah, you know, I, I can say I helped design a little art piece, a working sundial that's now on Mars. That's amazing. And how likely do you think it is that humankind could actually inhabit Mars and live there comfortably? That's a difficult question because it's a difficult mm -hmm. proposition. There is the most hospitable place on Mars is harder to live on than the most desolate place on Earth. And wow. what it will take in order to live on Mars will be far harder than living in the worst place on Earth. So, yeah, we could eventually live on Mars, but it will be one of the greatest undertakings that human beings have ever done. And truth be told, if we're going to undertake something that difficult, I really would prefer that we undertake fixing our own planet first. Um, we're conduct, you know, if you think about what it would take to make Mars hospitable, well, mm -hmm. it's going to be vastly harder and take vastly longer than stopping what we're doing to our own planet, which is currently making it inhospitable. So there's my priorities. Your priorities are also my priorities. I mean, I'm not saying that we should not do space exploration, but it's, it offends me that we would leave so many rocks unturned here before we are, you know, we're not taking care of ourselves before we're looking to kind of monopolize another location. So that's, that's, I, yeah. Oh, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. But I, I and I do want to stress, we must learn about the other planets in our solar system uh, because we have yeah. things to, that will, they will teach us about our own planet. 
what we know about climate change uh, here on Earth comes from understanding why Venus had as a runaway greenhouse effect and became a, 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 a hothouse. Uh, what we're learning about Mars, where it was once warmer and wetter uh, in its distant past, teaches us about how climates do change on planets, how they can change naturally. And in fact, if they're relatively easy to be changed naturally, that means that when you have a species that's actually pushing and affecting it, we have a much greater effect on our planet than we might otherwise think because climates, they are not set in stone. So anyway, what I'm trying to get at here is other planets are test beds for our own planet. Uh, so we can go there, we can learn about them, we can bring material back, but our, uh, our, our Mars is not going to be a lifeboat for us. Uh, so yeah. we, we need to, we need to fix the leaks in our own first. I agree. That's fascinating what you said about Venus. So it had a runaway greenhouse effect. And do we know what the Venus? start was and, and how that happened? So, so Venus may once have been like the earth, but Venus was closer to the sun. And so, uh, closer to the sun, higher temperatures, more water vapor, uh, in the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas, more water vapor gets it hotter. Uh, the carbon dioxide, eventually those oceans would have dried up. Uh, when that happens, carbon dioxide in Venus's atmosphere, uh, on the earth, carbon dioxide gets soaked up into our oceans. So our oceans actually draw this greenhouse gas of carbon dioxide out of our air. Uh, on Venus, once the oceans were gone, there was no more carbon dioxide being drawn out of the atmosphere. And so it built up. And so Venus today has this incredibly thick carbon dioxide atmosphere, which traps in the wow. heat. And it became this, this, this runaway effect, more carbon dioxide, more heat, more carbon dioxide, more heat. I always call that not a vicious cycle, but a vicious Um, so <laughs> I hope that we don't end up in that situation here on earth. So yes. we are coming to the close of our conversation and, you know, on the outlook. So I truly believe that we can get the stars back by 2030, that we can achieve the tipping point of awareness, which we have not achieved yet. There's the larger collective, at least here in our country, the United States, does not understand that light pollution is not a, it, it's thought of as a nuisance. It is not a nuisance. It is a grave aspect of climate change. So in your work, in, in your career, have you noticed a change um, in the public understanding that's leaning towards a better trajectory? It's definitely the case in national parks that more and more visitors to national parks have realized that they are missing something at home uh, and that dark skies are important to them when they go to those parks. Park managers have realized that the night sky and preserving it is a part of, of what their park is about. Uh, 10 years ago, when I first visited some parks, superintendents would say, well, what does the night sky have to do with my park? Nobody has told me that in, in years at this point. So that message is getting out there. Um, my hope is that more and more cities are beginning to realize the importance of, of of preserving starry skies. And I'm seeing 
uh, more and more cities look for dark dark sky status. So that mm -hmm. that fills me with hope. Uh, I will, however, say that the more cities I see converting to LED lights and doing it in a terrible, mm -hmm. horrible way um, fills me with dread and, and makes me yeah. does make me pessimistic for the future. Yeah, it's all too easy to pollute with LEDs. They're both the cause and the cure, unfortunately. And yeah. that's dangerous. That's very dangerous when you have to use the cause to try and cure it because it's just all too easy to do it incorrectly. And I actually was giving a tutorial to um, a region yesterday. And <clears throat> the question behind the tutorial was, um, you know, it was a group of students and they wanted to know um, what tell, please tell us about dark sky technology. My thesis for this, for the call is there's no new dark sky technology. We've had everything for the last 10 years. It's not going to change its controls, its directionality, and it's turning lights off. Um, and, and yes, we could probably get into spectral content and maybe starting to, to try to increase visibility while decreasing impact. And I think there's something very special there. But the problem is in our thinking and implementation. And that's why it's a very scary thought to think that we are handing people the, the weapon and the solution at the same time. Is there anything uh, exciting on the horizon for your work? Any projects that you want to share with us? Well, let's see. Uh, there's there's the Antarctica eclipse coming up, but the really big exciting thing is in October of 2023 and April of 2024, there will be two eclipses coming across the U.S. In 23, it's an annular eclipse going through the American West and Southwest where the, the moon doesn't completely block out the sun, but you get this ring of fire. But in April of 2024, there will be another total solar eclipse and it's going to run from texas up through buffalo and niagara falls and up through maine and so it'll be a chance for folks here on the east and midwest to get to see this amazing phenomenon if so if you missed it back in 2017 where we had the great american eclipse this mm -hmm. one's going to be the greatest north american eclipse so i, I encourage everybody oh. to find out about it april of 24. well that's amazing and Thank you so much for all of your advocacy, for your fascination creation, and reminding people of the night sky from an emotional point of view by tapping into their inner child. I think your work is powerful and moving. We need more voices. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, don't go anywhere yet because we have some instructions for you. It's Michael and Greg from Get a Grip on Lighting. Yeah, we do the ads for Starving for Darkness. You got to go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Light made easy, Greg. You've been rattled that off real well. Uh, there's a new line of exterior fixtures from Keystone that they have available, and they're going to continue to expand on it, and they're doing things right. And one of those that they're doing right is in their wall packs. They're making them full cutoff. That's going to eliminate undesirable sky glow and glare and that's what we all want it looks nice it fits a profile of a lot of your old nasty fixtures and has multiple wattages and kelvins that can cover you there get rid of those old nasties go to keystonetech.com that's k-e-y-s-t-o-n-e-t-e-c-h.com thanks for listening to starving for darkness bye for now <laughs>